Spanish Bible, and I forgot that I was coming to the United States, and you guys actually speak a different language here, so I didn't bring my English Bibles. I borrowed a Bible from my dear old brother Calvin there, and so this Bible has very small lettered, even for me, but we're going to do our best here that we can. I want to invite you guys to go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. In my, in my time in Bolivia uh, as a missionary, I, I usually speak about five times per week. Uh, they're usually, I love expository Bible teaching because I think that's what really feeds the soul. It teaches us things and it lets the Bible speak instead of uh, me speaking my own opinion and maybe getting it wrong. We let the word tell us what it wants to tell us. And it saves us from a lot of problems. For example, you get to a hard passage, you just say what's there. It's like, it's not like I came to, to get you in the gut, you know, I just simply came and spoke what was written. And that's the, the power of the word is the true power, is it not? And that's what really changes us. So uh, I'm excited that you guys have a night where you come together and you do a Bible study. I, I suppose on Sundays you guys also have uh, study through, but you guys are working through, I think, the book of Ephesians and whatnot, right? Sunday? Sunday. To, to, these nights. Ephesians. Ephesians, right? So I think that's great. So in my hometown, I work through the book of Luke. We've worked through the book of Job, Galatians, Revelation, Daniel, a bunch of different books with me. Every single night I would, a week I'll do... Uh, up to a chapter, depending um, uh, how, I, how I structure it to get through. So uh, I've been working through Luke, and it is one of my favorite books, because Luke is my kind of guy. He is very detailed, very detail-oriented, excessively detail-oriented, and that's kind of how I am. So uh, I like that Luke gives me all the details that maybe the other guys didn't give us. It's kind of like watching a highlight reel, and you see in the old times, you got the highlight reels that were in black and white, or the highlight reels in the 90s, and you saw basically one take over and over and over and over again. Nowadays, if you watch a goal or a or a touchdown, or a home run, you see about 25 different angles, and you even see it, you know, the sweat dripping down his face with the 4K and everything. You're like, goodness, this is too much information now. But it's fun. It makes it a lot more interesting. What That's what the Gospels do. They give you four different, as it were, angles to the same story. And they, they point out special things. Luke is the most detailed. So it's like the sweat off the brow, you know, that you get to see what is really happening uh, in the life of Jesus. And the, and the question that keeps reoccurring one, once and again, again and again, is who is this man? Because the Bible presents Jesus in a historical format. You see, he is a he's a carpenter from a small, you know, hillbilly town of Nazareth, about 400 people, way in the north that was considered, you know, Poor people area, people that were, weren't educated, people that weren't anybody. And here comes a 33-year-old man uh, that to the Pharisees would be young. And he was not yet married, and he wasn't anybody. He wasn't anything. And you say, who is this guy? He's doing incredible miracles, teaching phenomenal things. Is he on our team or not? That's what the Pharisees wanted to find out. And they quickly found out they didn't want him on their team. And they found out that Jesus wasn't so – he wasn't going to bow to them. And treat them um, the way they wanted to be treated. You know, you're right in everything you say. And so the question that, that occurs once again in the book of Luke is, who is this man? And so in Luke chapter 4, we have the temptation of, of Jesus. His, he's baptized, presented to the world, and the first thing God wants him to do is what? Go to the desert for 40 days and don't eat for 40 days. Okay, so before we get into this, we're going to talk about tonight, if you, if you do take notes or anything, or you have a perfect brain, like I'm sure most of you do, and you remember everything I tell you, 
uh, we're going to put the title as Temptations and Victories. Temptations and Victory, because we all struggle with temptation every single day. And it's different for each one of us. There's different weaknesses for me that may not be a weakness for you. And it may be a weakness for you and not for me. And varying degrees. And there's always those sins that always get us every single day. And it's incredibly frustrating. You say, why do I keep on failing at this same stinking thing? And of course, we understand the importance of grace, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of second chances. That's who God is. But at the same time, we're like, can I do better? Is there an opportunity, Lord, to, to overcome at least half the time? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just do a little better. So when we look at Luke chapter 4, we get the blueprint for victory. And there's actually a, a book. Um, how many of you guys, uh, let's see, how many of you guys have read the book uh, by Sung Su called The Art of War? Anybody here? Okay, there's a few people who've read that book, okay? Well, from North, South Korea, right next door to to our Chinese general. And uh, it's not maybe the most read book, but there's a lot of uh, companies and businesses that use the concepts built in in The Art of War. It's a very old book by a Chinese general. Uh, now, I'm not going to be an expert on the topic, so please don't um, go ballistic on me if I get it wrong. But the book talks about how this Chinese general, such a brilliant mind, a strategy mind, was trying to find out how to win and how to know when to attack, when to defend, when to retreat, when to siege, what kind of circumstances lead to victory in war. So the art of war, right? Now that's been applied to businesses, you know, and it's been applied to a lot of different corporations and, and ideas. But I think it also applies to life. One of the main tenets in his, in his book is basically three points. First of all, you need to know who your enemy is when you're going to go to war. You need to understand who your enemy is. What's his strength? What's his ability? What is he trying to do to you? So that leads you to the second point. What's your weakness? If you were the enemy, how would he attack you? So what, where would he get you? And lastly, how can you win? So you know, your, you know your enemy, you know yourself, and you know how to win. Those three elements he argued, lead, lead to victory. So you know, let's take into, into practice. You say, let's have a castle. We're an ancient castle. Not, not like today, you know, today it's a lot harder to do war because there's so many different ways to attack, right? And there's all kinds of different bombs and strategy and hackers. In the old school, it's basically, you got some trebuchets and some big old walls and a bunch of soldiers and swords and shields. And I think that's a lot cooler, personally. It makes for a lot nicer movies. Um, a lot less bloody, too, than, you know, like nuclear warfare. But, you have a castle. Where are you going to attack it? So you've got to look at your own castle and say, where are the weaknesses? Where would they attack me? So I'm getting ahead of myself. Actually, we're not supposed to start there. We're supposed to start in the other one. We're supposed to say, know your enemy. So you say, what is the enemy good at? The enemy's really good with archers. The enemy has this. The enemy has that. They're going to attack you in this way. This is his greatest strength. He, he doesn't want to siege me. He wants to full out attack. So you understand what your enemy wants. And then you go to the next step. You say, where would he attack me? Knowing his strategy, knowing his past, where would he want to attack me? Where is his greatest strength matched up against my greatest weakness? Maybe say, man, my gates aren't very strong. My wall over here is pretty low. Uh, we have a sewer system that could be infiltrated from underground. And so you say, we need to change these things. We need to fix it. We need to prepare for war. And that leads you to your third step. How do I make my weaknesses lesser and then you go on to counterattack and says, now I'm going to take into account his weaknesses and get him where he's not expecting. So 
war. War is a thing that we see on television. But in the same sense, the Bible tells that we are at a spiritual, in spiritual warfare every single day. And our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's against sin. It's against Satan. It's against the system of the world. And it is a very difficult, very challenging battle that is a battle for our very soul. And it's not, as Christians, we cannot lose our salvation. But Satan can win in making us feel guilty, in making us feel less, in making us feel useless, in making us into a bench warmer, basically. That's what, that's what Satan wants. He says he's happy that you can continue to go to church, actually. He'd actually prefer you to be in church and be a hypocrite. And he's happy about that. He's happy to have us as bench warmers. He's happy to have us just saying the right things, just doing enough, just going enough times, and just giving the least amount. In Spanish, there's a saying that people say, man, I, I came and I gave my grain of... And, oh, you have the same saying in English, sorry. But my grain of sand. You guys have that saying? My, 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 okay, there is the English way. My two cents. Here's my two cents. I'm like, I don't want your two cents. Give me at least a dollar, man. I mean, two cents. I get my grain of sand. I'm like, grain of sand? Like, that's nothing, man. God doesn't want your grain of sand. So we're not here teaching prosperity gospel, by the way, about the two cents. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't work very well in English. But it's like, am I really going to give the, the least in my ability, in my time, in my talent? Am I going to give the last of what I have? So see, in that sense, we still lose. Satan still wins when he gets the least out of us, when he gets mediocrity out of us. So why did Jesus get tempted? There's a lot of questions about this passage, you know, and, and, and you know, the theologians start going crazy. And they like passages like this. This is kind of like, these are bread and butter. They love passages like this where they can start arguing, debating, and saying, well, this and that and the other. And there's this big debate when I went to Emmaus. And if you read this passage, you're going to get into the debate. What's the debate? the peccability or impeccability of Christ. And you're like, what? Why do we just change languages? Well, it's, it's still English, I think. But the argument is, could Jesus sin or could he not sin? And we go on and on and on about this. And it's okay if you want to argue that, but I want to take you to a different aspect. I, the Bible doesn't tell us if Jesus could or could not sin. It simply said he did not sin. That's the final answer. Okay. So that's very important. But at the same time, you ask yourself, why was he tempted? Now, I believe Satan thought he might have a one in a one billion trillion chance. So he took it because he's going to take every chance he can. Right. That's how he is. He's going to try. It's like, well, why not? It's bait. Just like, just like God with Job. Have you seen Job? Oh, I have. Yeah. You know, and God is and God was luring him in to the bait. So here's Jesus. He's 40 days without eating, and he's like, oh, let's take a chance on this. Yeah, you know, best chance, best opportunity. Who knows what's going to happen? So why was he tempted? Why was Jesus tempted? Why did God allow this? I would argue that it's to give us a blueprint. He did not sin. God already knew he was not going to sin. And all the other debate basically is futile because if I know that Jesus could or could not sin, doesn't really change my interpretation of the passage. But what does change is that Jesus showed me how to win. How many guys are, okay, basically I, I assume that most of the men in here have some kind of liking for some kind of sports team somewhere, right? I don't know. You got the Miami Dolphins, you got the Marlins. I mean, I'm a big Seattle Seahawks fan. I love Barcelona. So probably the biggest soccer team 
in the world as far as like domination in the last 10 years was Barcelona. And they have some exceptional players, but they also have a blueprint to beat you. A few years back, though, there's a team in England called Chelsea that found a, a blueprint to beat them to, to at least not lose terribly. Okay, like they had, everybody had been losing forever against Barcelona in every single championship. And they decided to go all-out defense tactic. And I'm not going to get into all the details, but it worked. And so all the little clubs and big clubs and everybody everywhere started doing the same thing against this team. And all of a sudden it became so much more difficult for them to win. They do the same thing in football. What do those coaches do all week long between games? Tactics. Statistics. What is their greatest weakness? What is our greatest ability? What is their you know, third down conversion rate? All those things go into play. What are they doing? They're doing strategy all the time to find the weakness of the enemy against their greatest strength, right? So Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to show you how you beat the worst single enemy that exists. And I'm going to give you a blueprint to do it. So Jesus, I believe the reason why God allowed Jesus to be tempted was to show the power of Jesus, to show that he really was the true deal, but also to say, here's how you beat the enemy. Because while he attacks me, in a sense, he's actually exposing himself. So let's look at this passage, okay? Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And if you guys don't like sports, I apologize for all that terrible introduction. But I like sports, so get over it. And I'm preaching. Verse 1 says, that's terrible. I should not say that. But I'm from South America. We get away with that kind of stuff. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when he had ended, when they had ended, he was hungry. Okay, so... Jesus is baptized, publicly recognized at 30 years old. And the first thing he does is to go into the desert for 40 days and he eats nothing. I mean, that's the limit. That's a human limit of not eating. I mean, how many – this, this shouldn't be a question, but I mean, is there anybody here who really says, I really love fasting, man. That is my thing. That just drives me. It's great. I love it. I mean, No. I don't like fasting, period. I mean, the reason when I'm really stressed out, I stop eating. So I fast automatically. Okay, a lot of you guys are probably this way too. Some people get stressed and they overeat. That's another problem, right? But I, I get stressed and I can't eat anything. I, you know, but I do, I do take a fast every single night. You know, I, nighttime, I take, a, I take a fast and I have a break fast, you know. So you didn't know that was there, did you? And he was hungry, it says. He had eaten nothing for 40 days, and he was hungry. But I want you to pay attention to something, because sometimes we think that Jesus was only tempted on that last moment, that last day. But read carefully, it says, and being tempted for 40 days. Being tempted. Do you see that? Does Satan take a Sunday off? Does sin take, a, does sin take the morning off on you? Is there a day that, man, thank the Lord, it's Saturday because I'm not going to get tempted today. Man, wouldn't that be great? Man, I'm not going to struggle with anything today. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it right today. There is no day when you get off. There is no vacation for Satan or for the devil or for sin or for the world. It is always bombarding you every single day, every single moment. And it says in Scripture, when you think you're doing well, be careful because it might be your worst moment. You might fall. 
It's incredible. It's a constant all-out war. Jesus was not tempted one day, and he was not tempted on three things. He was tempted for 40 days, and this was what's recorded is the most intense moment of that temptation. But Jesus, unlike us, did not fail at any of them. And when it got harder, he got tougher. Let's see what happens here. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So the first temptation is the most obvious one. He's stinking hungry. He hasn't eaten anything for 40 days. He could, you could give him anything and he'd be, and he'd be happy. And Satan says, come on, Jesus. I mean, don't you have some miracles? Don't you have some ability? Don't you got some power? If you are, ah, that's the, that's the classic bait to get anybody to defend themselves, to get anybody to show themselves. When I was a Growing up in Bolivia, all the girls wanted me to speak English because I don't know why, but that was just a cool thing. And they say, can you speak English? I was like, yeah. Show me. (laughs) Classic, right? Show me. And I was very, very, very rebellious. Not rebellious. I was very stubborn. So I would specifically say no. But if they paid me, I would do it. (laughs) And they also wanted to look at my eyes. I was the only one in my whole town with blue eyes. says, do you have blue eyes? I'm like, no. (laughs) I do have blue eyes, but you got to pay for it. And it was, you know, that's terrible things to do. That's why I was a businessman since I was a kid, and I made a lot of money. They wanted to pay me with, with kisses on the cheek, and I'm like, no, 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 hard cash, man. None of this. But they do that trick. You know, Show me. Can you really, Jesus? Do you really have the ability to do a miracle? And then he says, but you're, you're, you're starving. You could, you could do anything you wanted. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that one time, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to rest his head? I mean, couldn't he have made a Hilton? Just say, you know, hey, guys, we, we had a long day. Feet are sore. I need a good, good spa, good, good bath, good bed. Let's just put it up here, you know, in the middle of the Negev. Wherever they are, just put up a big old five-star hotel, make it happen. It would be so easy, right? He slept on a rock. He didn't bring his pillow along. Here he is surrounded, he says, by, by rocks. Turn him into bread. So it's very practical. And it's do it. The, the temptation is basically this. Do it your own way. Do it your own way. So that's the temptation that Satan is always launching at us. You know who else was tempted in that same way? Is uh, Abraham. Abraham was given a promise by God. A promise that he was going to have a son of promise. A son that was going to have uh, eternal lineage. Like descendants forever. It would not be cut off ever his last name it was going to have a land that he was going to live in that was going to be become israel forever and then out of there would come a descendant who blessed the whole world speaking of jesus christ an incredible incredible covenant god made with abraham the abrahamic covenant right it is the foundational piece of the existing country of israel against all odds right it's a miracle of what is today israel in spite of all its history, it is still there. But how did it start? Abraham's waiting around for the miracles. He's like, okay, I'm going to have a kid, right? Uh, time's running out. My wife's not making babies. 
she's only 90 years old. We have a problem here. So Sarah comes and says, hey, why don't we help God out? Do it our way. Says, why don't we do a little legal sidestepping like good lawyers do? Let's come around and say, okay, you get married with my servant, turn into your concubine. When she has a kid, we'll name it my kid. And then we saw the problem. I have a kid, and you have your lineage, and God is out of a tight spot. Right? That little problem is in the news every single day. Do you know that? 3,000 years of unrivaled hatred between Arab and Jew is Isaac and Ishmael helping God out. Doing it my way. It's impatience at the center of it. So much of a sin is just impatience. I want things my way, my time. Isn't it? I want it the way I want it. And if you put it in a word, impatience in a sense is also just ego. So Satan is going after the classic. He says, do it your way. Don't wait around for God to tell you you can have breakfast. Just go make your breakfast, man. It's not that bad. You can do it. You have the ability to. Why would you not? And Jesus' answer is very powerful. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. In other words, when God tells me to, I'll do it. I'll do it his way, not my way. I'll do it when he wants me to, not when I want to do it. And that's hard to do because he is literally starving to death. And he's like, are you sure God's going to take care of you, man? So they forgot about you. Same with Abraham, right? How many times we go through a temptation, we go through a struggle, and we're praying to the Lord for something, we really need an answer, and it just doesn't come. And sometimes the answer might show up, what we think is an answer, but in a sense we are going to be knowingly sinning in some other way. So we all know our own circumstances, but maybe an opportunity comes up and says, hey, this is an easy way out. Here's a way to make that extra little bit of money that you couldn't make. Here's that way to, you know, in Latin America, it's so common for cheating to happen, in, in, even at a Bible school. I, I work at a Bible school, and I can't believe my student says, how can you be at a Bible school and you're cheating? Like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, you came for a grade? So that's the temptation. Get it the way I want it. Get it now. And Jesus said, no. By the word of God. When he says the word, when he wants it, I will go. I will do. I will eat. So Satan said, okay, let's go for the second round. Verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So here we got to use a little bit of our, I think we can understand this better than almost any other culture in history because we actually know what technology can do. So it's not that Satan pulled out Google Earth, but something like that. You, kind of, you got into some kind of a system where he got to see the whole world, all the peoples, all the kingdoms, all the resources, everything that was promised to Jesus. If you read in Daniel chapter 7, it says 
And a son of man came to the ancient of days and it was given to him dominion and power and authority to rule over all the nations and all people and all languages forever and ever. Amen. I'm doing a paraphrase. But that's what the promise is, right? An eternal king of kings. And that's Jesus. And when Jesus comes to earth, that is his promise. That is his kingdom. That is what he's offering. And he's offering an eternal, literal kingdom. And the Jews reject it. That does not mean that the promise is not going to be fulfilled. The king will return. He will come back. And he will reign forever through the, for the whole world. But here's the second temptation. Satan says, why wait? Don't only do it your way. Do it in your time. So there's a second temptation that he's thrown at. Do it in your time. Do it in your time. How many, how, how many guys are impatient? I am incredibly impatient. That's my problem. I'm a very impatient person. And you know what? Let me tell you a little secret. This is going to upset you guys. Sorry. But when you live in a different culture, you kind of get to know what the strengths are of a culture and also the weaknesses. The American culture has a lot of great qualities, but we have a very great deficiency. We are incredibly impatient as a people. And we want our popcorn now in two and a half minutes. You know, I want my toast to come out in one minute and I want my TV show without commercials. Okay. And I want my internet blazing fast and I want my tickets online and I want to get there and it want to start at the moment I want it to start. So in a sense, it is organized. It's good. It's great. But we end up running over a lot of people in the process sometimes. And when there's flexibility involved, like I need to go to a mission team. Why is he not here? It's two minutes. Yeah, because it's not going to start until another half hour. So chill out and take a seat. What is wrong with this incompetent culture? No, it's just different. So there's this impatience about us that we just have to have it our way, our time. Otherwise, this is such a – and I, I deal with that. you know. And I'm impatient too. So I'm half American, so I'm half impatient. So I get impatient and I and – I learned how to cope, and I mean, there's a church I go to speak at uh, once a month on Saturday, and it's a Baptist church, and their meeting is scheduled for 7.30. I come at 8.15. It does not start at 7.30. It starts at 8.25, if you're lucky. So I'm not going to sit there for an hour until they tune the guitar and talk to each other and smile and this and that and the other, and they're slowly walking in. I'm like, I'm not going to be there. Thankfully, the brethren have... They've instilled a lot more of the time schedule. But even yet, I mean, it is rarely that the church meeting starts on time. And it doesn't end on time either. So that's why you get Latino speakers like me who go over. So just I'm just warning you ahead of time. Well, hopefully not too much. But, you know, it's differences of culture. But impatience is a human problem that's sometimes exacerbated by culture. We have a very impatient culture. We want everything now. And Satan's telling Jesus, why are you going to wait you know, the cross, you can, you can do away with all that. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. Man, we make so many decisions just not to suffer, don't we? That's why we have insurance. That's what they're, they're arguing about in the Senate right now. I'm kidding. That's a little bit exaggerated. But they just don't want to suffer. We want to do it our time. He says, why do you have to go to the cross? Why do you have to suffer? Why all this? Why don't you just take it now? And now that second, que second question that shows up is like, but can Satan really offer that? Is he allowed to, to say these words? He says, listen to the words. He here says before Jesus, all this authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me. 
and I give it to whomever, whomever I will. Is that a true statement? It is. It is a true statement. The prince of the powers of this earth is Satan. That's, that's true. God decided it. Why? I have no idea. Okay? That's the honest answer. There's a lot of things in the Bible I don't know. And we can, you know, we can hypothesize and talk a lot. I don't know. I know God is going to use it for good. I know he is perfect in doing it. But right now, we are under the authority of Satan. And the vast majority of leaders in our world today, being presidents or prime ministers or dictators or, or mayors or policemen, I mean, the vast majority of the people with power today are corrupt. America, you actually have it good. You say, man, has, you had to pick between two scumbags. Yeah, you kind of did. But if you go anywhere else, it's like you don't know what the level of scumbag exists. The type of people that get into power, the things they do, the transferring that does not exist. It is so horrible. People dying so terribly in Venezuela today. The suffering that's happened in Cuba for, for decades. King Jong-il just destroying the people in North Korea. And they can't do anything about it. You know, that's, that's the reality of this, of this world. It's so sick. And you say, God, why don't you do something now? Right? There is the question again. You do it now. We need an answer now. And Jesus is placed with the same type of temptation we are faced with. Jesus, you could fix this right now. Why don't you just do it? Because if Jesus set up his kingdom without the cross, there wouldn't be anybody in that kingdom. He needed to go through the process. He says, when Luke chapter 24, he tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus, do you not understand that the Son of Man had to suffer and die before entering into his glory? Then the second question is, why did Jesus wait? Why has he waited 2,000 years to return? Why didn't he just return right away? Again, he wants to fill up the kingdom. He wants many, 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 many more to enter. What a beautiful thing. There's so many things we don't understand. But constantly I'm reminded of the love of God and the patience of God. Whereas we are so impatient, God is so incredibly patient, isn't he? With me, with you. Same old sin, just like yesterday. Same old failure. And God says, I still love you. Get on up again. Isn't that amazing? It's a beautiful thing. So Jesus does not contradict Satan here. He says, yes, right. It is yours to give. It is yours. He says, but you have a slight problem because you want to give it to me based on coercion, based on what would be treason against God, based on blasphemy. You want me to treat you as if you were more than me. And I can't do that. I will only worship God. So if any part of the process includes a sin, it's wrong. So the best lie, what, is 99% truth. Everything he said is right, Satan, but I can't do the last thing. Hand over the keys, but no strings attached. So then a question comes, so if Satan does have the keys, he still has the keys today. So who's he put in office? Usually the people he wants to put in office. Now the Lord has put in good men and women throughout history into different places. But the great majority have been evil. I think one of the few countries in the history of the world that's been blessed with good leaders has been America, you know. We have a couple George Washingtons and a couple Abe Lincolns, people like that. But even so, 
The rest of the world, man, I cannot name one single president in my country that I respect. In 200 years of history, we've had over 200 presidents. This is a serious corruption. Uh, you know, you say, man, it's such an awful thing in this country. Man, just thank the Lord uh, when, you, when you wake up in this country because there's a blessing uh, that still exists. And that's, that's a whole other topic. I'm not going to talk about that. Let's continue here. So the third temptation, the third time is a charm. Or three strikes and you're out. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If, again, here is the bait, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And he quotes a second verse In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So here's a third temptation. What is this temptation about? It's one of the, one of the stranger ones. You're on top of the, the temple. What the pinnacle means is like it's the highest point of the temple. Very massive structure. And maybe it's a Sabbath. We don't know, but maybe that's, or, or it was a day when a lot of people were at the temple. It was probably packed out. And Jesus can look down and see a great amount of people. And Satan is telling him, Throw yourself down here. And the Bible says that he won't let you perish until God wants you to perish. And he won't let anything happen to you unless he wants it to happen. Is that not true? Well, he's quoting scripture. It's tough, isn't it? But what is he saying to Jesus? Make yourself famous. Imagine what would happen in the midst of all these people. Everybody's seeing you. In, in, in the most holy, important place. And you're just wanting to, you're an upstart. You want to get known. You want to be famous. We'll just do it in the best place possible. I'm giving you the chance here. Throw yourself down. Angels will come and save you. And they would say, whoa, who is this carpenter? Wow. Do you ever notice something about Jesus? Something that very, very interesting about Jesus. He's always running from fame. He is so Strange. He does not do what you're supposed to do. The most famous person in all of history didn't want to be famous. At least in his first coming. The most transcendent, beautiful human being came in rags. And was put in a corner and treated as a, as a bother when he was born. And that's the history, that's the story of Jesus. A carpenter who wasn't even president of the chess club. He was nobody. Changed the world before he even turned 33 or 34. I mean, incredible. He, he, he broke all the rules. He didn't do what you're supposed to do. He didn't defend himself. He didn't step up. He didn't stand out. It says in Isaiah 52, he was basically so much of a nobody that he wasn't even recognizable. He, nobody cared about him. We gave it our back to him. Same in Isaiah 53. It continues the same phrase, right? See, so if you want to be great, Jesus says, become nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It, it goes against everything we've ever been taught. But maybe that's why it worked. <laughs> he was truly humble at heart. He truly loved at heart. He was genuinely giving of himself for us at heart. And it changed the world forever. And Satan is trying to say, 
well, if I was going to do this, I'd go and get as famous as possible. But why did Jesus, why could he not get famous on his first chance, on his first time around? The world is striving so hard to be famous, aren't they? Everybody, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what are they trying to do? Look at me. I'm so important. Took 12 selfies today. I'm cool. And everybody's doing the same thing. Promoting, we all do it. I mean, it's hard. We're, we're striving so hard to just be a little better. Just put a little bit of hair back on our ha- head or something, you know, just a little sharper, just shave a little nicer, you know, just stand out a little more. And you're Jesus with his shabby old clothes walking around. Say, what? You're not supposed to do that. And people followed him and he ran away from them. He says he went away to a place to pray. Let's cross the, let's cross the lake because I can't handle these people. <laughs> Didn't charge a penny. And they're filling churches today with the gospel of Jesus, quote unquote, selling it. Could not be more contrary to who Jesus is. Jesus fled from fame because he had come to die. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. He needed to be nobody. He needed to be hated by enough people to get him on that cross because he loved us more than he loved himself. He loved us more. He was willing to give everything because he wanted us. And just, like I said, he broke all the rules. <laughs> That's what makes Jesus so, so everything to us. And that's why I say the book of Luke continues the question, who is this man? Who is this man? There is nobody ever like him in all of history. And Jesus, now, can Satan quote scripture? He knows it better than you do and better than I do. That's a scary thought. He's had about, about six to 7,000 years of practice, depending who you ask. That's a long time. He's been in the ear a lot of different people. He's, He's gone against some serious bulwarks of faith. You know, the Martin Luthers, Mark Men, David, Joseph. He's been against the top dogs. We're the cucarachas. You know what cucaracha is? We're the, we're the bug. We're nothing to him. He can wipe us out. He knows scripture back in front. He knows it's true. But he's always using it. Even that against is incredible. He is so incredibly powerful. So when we talk about when we talked about before, know your enemy. Who is your enemy? Your enemy is incredibly smart, incredibly well prepared, incredibly experienced. It's not rookie versus veteran. It's rookie versus six thousand year veteran. And we are in a heap of trouble. That's why we lose so much. <laughs> but Jesus. He says, Satan, you have a problem in your argument. If I throw myself down, I'm forcing God to do what I want. Again, you're going back to the impatience aspect. You're making him do what I want to do. And that's a sin. See, there is a sin we, we do a lot in our life all the time. We make our plans and ask God to bless them. But no, that's wrong. That's a sin. We say, no, God, make my plans. Therefore, they will be blessed. And that's why Jesus always prays. And he teaches us to pray what? Not my will, but yours be done. I remember I I spent the whole year praying for something one time. 
about eight years ago. Thank the Lord he said no. I kept banging on that door, man. He said no. Thank the Lord he said no, because my plans are not the best plans. And he needed to break me. He needed to break me. He says no, in my time, in my way. And it will be the best, but you've got to trust me. And here's Jesus. You know, the promise of the king of kings. And he is 40, years with, 40 days without eating. He is hungry. He is sick and tired of being tempted every single moment. He's on his last string. And he does not give up on God. He does not give up on his faith that God is good. End of story. You know, if you have a kid, some of you guys, a lot of you guys have little kids here. And you put that little kid in a, in a dark alleyway, nighttime, nobody with you. Here's a young man. What would you feel like? I mean, let's put you in a, in a really dangerous country, on a really dangerous alley. There's no lights. There's no nothing. And you're there all alone. What are you going to be feeling? Scared, right? Yes, very scared, I'm sure. I would be too. But what happens if your dad's next to you, holding your hand? How are you feeling? Less scared? <laughs> More scared? Okay, well, it depends who your dad is. But, man, if my dad's there and I said, we're going to go this way. Okay, dad, you know, if you're taking me, it's safe, I guess. You know, it must be. See, that's what it's like with God. When you're on your own, you say, this enemy is impossible. Who can handle him? Who can go against him? But what does Jesus grab onto one and again time? He doesn't grab onto his miraculous powers or his, or his sayings or, his, or some argument. He doesn't get into a battle. He simply does what? He trusts his father. And he quotes scripture. He quotes scripture. It's like a kid who takes his dad's hand. He says, Dad's with me? It's okay. If God's there, he's good, and he will lead me through. So that's, that's the simple faith that Jesus shows us. Just trust the Bible. Just trust the Word of God. Trust that he is good. What's fascinating about this passage is that all the passages come from Deuteronomy between 6 and 8. Jesus didn't have to go very far. He was just doing his Bible reading. He didn't have the scroll with him, by the way. He just memorized it, which... Tells you something. Jewish boys memorize a lot of scripture. And Jesus probably knew it. I'm sure he knew it the full way through. He was just meditating on a piece of scripture. And he used that to defend himself. That's why it's so important, our relationship with the Lord. So the temptation Jesus received. Let's just go through it here. The first one is the hunger aspect, right? He says, do it your way. The second one was about all the kingdoms now. So do it in your time. And lastly, you could argue maybe do it for yourself. Get yourself famous. Do it for yourself. And the answer to every single one of them is in God's time, in God's way. He's the boss, man. And I'm going to trust him to take care of me. We talked about at the beginning about a castle. Know your enemy, know your weakness, know how to win. So we, let's go back here. Who's our enemy? The enemy is, first of all, first and foremost, it's our sin. It's our sinful nature. And that hounds us every single day, all the time. 
And it's also Satan, who knows what your weakness is, and you intensify situations. And there's also things beyond our control, like society. Like that TV commercial. Like that person that just cut you off in traffic. And you're about to blow a fuse. Those are out of your control. But those things all come together, and they make for a temptation. Temptation is not a sin. Temptation is what you do with it, right? That makes it a sin. So, know your enemy. Powerful, frustrating, deadly, all the time, on your tail, every day, every moment. There is no rest. My dad even said, sin is so bad, he even haunts you in your sleep with bad dreams. You've got to even pray to God that he'd help you have a clean mind when you sleep. Isn't that incredible? There's no rest, man. There's no rest for the weary. So the next one is, what's my weakness? Now, this is a hard part. A lot of us want to say, man, well, I made it pretty good. I'm, I'm not doing so not so bad. That's the biggest problem, isn't it? Thinking we made it, thinking we're okay, thinking we're strong. And uh, the person doesn't know they have a problem, can't, can't fix it. It's like a person that has, uh, just like none of you guys would ever take chemotherapy unless you're proved that you have cancer. God needs to show you you have a problem so you can fix it. What's the first rule of the, of the I even said it on Monday with the, with the, at the soccer thing. What, what's What's the first rule of the AA groups, the Alcoholics Anonymous? I have a problem. If you don't have a problem, you don't belong there. Said, oh, I drink every once in a while. No, 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 no. You have a problem or you don't. If you have a problem, you get fixed or else you leave. There is no, well, I'm not that bad. You start with the problem. We have a problem. It's called a sin problem. We all have it. Now, the thing is, we all have different weaknesses. And sometimes Christians, one of our great problems is that I think, and can be really hard on someone else who has a different struggle than me. Women have different struggles than men. There's very clear ones in that aspect. But there's also different people and different backgrounds. So sometimes we can do all high and mighty. Oh man, I'm so sorry for you that you struggle with that. Well, I'm past that. Well, maybe God didn't. He, he let someone else. They have that struggle. You don't. But you have a struggle. And there are probably several, right? Probably several. So you name them off. What does Paul go through the list? He says envy, hatred, you know, lies, lust. And he just goes on and on and pride. It's like, whoa. So pick your poison, man. What are yours? That's your weaknesses. That's where you're going to get attacked. That's where you need to be wise. That's where you need to, to stand up and fight and, and find in Scripture those passages to win. So... That's where we get to the blueprint, how to win. A terrible enemy, nonstop, serious weaknesses. How do I fight back? How can I have a chance of victory? Well, Jesus gave it to us. He says, basically, if we're going to sum it up, although it sounds so cliche and so simple, it's the Sunday school answer, but it's based on your relationship with God. How are you with God? That is the end all of, of the whole story. How is my relationship and how is your relationship with God? How do you feed that relationship? Again, the Sunday school answer, read your Bible and pray every day. Sunday school answer, right? But man, the longer, I mean, I'm, I'm still young and there's people here that could teach me so many things. But one thing I've learned is that Christianity is so incredibly simple. Biblical Christianity. What Jesus taught. Christianity is a relationship with the person. 
Think of him as your dad. Think of him as your best friend. The person that's craziest about you in the whole world. He's local about you. He knows your name. He knows everything you struggle. He's going. He, he knows what you're up against and he wants to help you. He's not your enemy. He's not far away. It's a relationship with God. And when you have a problem with your best friend, what do you do? You go and fix it. That's why we ask God to forgive us. Not because we need to get it wiped off our board and, and do the merit thing again. No, because he's a person. And he loves us. Man, I'm engaged to get married later this year. I cannot go to bed if I have a problem with, with Genesis. I cannot sleep. I sit up at 2 in the morning for whatever stupid reason. Talking about who knows what. You know how it is. Dumb. Or sometimes it's, you know, just me being stupid most of the time. But it's like, I'm sorry. I know I messed up. But we cannot let the sun go down unless it is fixed. Just like with God. I'm not. I can't be comfortable. I can't be fine unless I'm okay with him. And I also grab along. There's a, there's a verse of, of Jacob. You know, Jacob is fighting with a man all night. And that man is actually a pre-incarnation of Christ. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Isn't that beautiful? You've got to fight for it sometimes. Say, God, I, I need to be right with you. I need to be close to you. I need to get to know you better. Because to be anywhere near happy and joyful and blessed and at peace, I cannot find it anywhere else but with you. Everything else is extra. Everything else is replacement. God, a relationship with God, that changes things. So Jesus says the blueprint to beat the terrible enemy is your relationship with God. And falling in love with God and fighting for that relationship, just like so many of you guys that are married and you fought for your marriage. You got to fight for your relationship with God because everything in this world wants to rip that out and rip you away and destroy it. There is no more blessed thing than to be loved by God, is there? There is nothing more blessed to know I belong to him, but he wants to give us more than that. Not just, here's your passport to heaven. I want you to actually enjoy this life. I want you to actually be blessed. I want you to actually feel my presence with you and give you life, a life abundant. So many of us tonight, I want to just end with this. Temptations and victories. Oftentimes we should probably title it temptations and failures, right? We don't do so well. We don't feel so hot. A lot of us here probably struggle with guilt. So I did it again. Messed up again. Same old failure I always was. Satan's that's one of his favorites. What answers that? Dad is upset because you got an 80 on your test. Oh, I failed him. I had friends who used to get whipped bloodied for getting anything less than a B. My Asian friends, tough on their kids for grades. You know, God wants excellence, but he is so incredibly forgiving. So grace is the answer there. Grace, you got to know you are loved. You got to know you are accepted. You got to know that you have all the chances you will ever need. 
Not to take advantage of them or to, or to minimize them, but to know it's really there, that you are never a failure for God. However much more we feel loved by God, that changes everything. Like I said, you know, I know that God is in love with you. So guilt, the answer to guilt is grace. The answer to failure is get up again and try again because you've got to fight for it. Our relationship with God is so important. So let's say, Lord, I, I want to pray with you guys tonight and just close and ask the Lord to, to help us in our relationship with him, to put him first, to love him, to, to long to be close to him, not just to feel good, but because that is where the joy springs from. That's where peace springs from. That's where the blessing for your family is going to come. And for everything we do, life in abundance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night, for this time, for these brothers that we can be together here. And thank you for your word. It's always so uh, challenging, so refreshing, but at the same time, it hits us where it hurts. Lord, everybody in here, everybody in here in some way or another, we failed today. In a big way or in a small way. Just the way it goes. Lord, we thank you for loving us so much. We can even barely love ourselves and barely get along with the stupid things we do. But you are so good to us, Father. And I pray you, you teach us through the word of, that we have a, such a terrible enemy, such terrible temptation that is nonstop. But you've given us the blueprint to win, and that is our relationship with you. I pray, Father, that we would always put you first, always dedicate ourselves to being right with you, to say, I will not leave you until you bless me, not leave meditating on scripture and praying until we feel you changing us showing us because life like you've told us is not a battle against flesh and blood there's a spiritual element and it's continuous we want to have victory because we want to find joy because we want to honor you because we want to bring a smile to your face when you look at us and when we fall thank you for picking us up father thank you pray you bless us this evening and the rest of the activities and the rest of this time, this marathon that is the spiritual life, to get to know you better. Help us, Father, in your son's precious name. Amen.